God's beloved people, grace to you and peace from God, our Creator, and from our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We've probably all heard it said that politics makes strange bedfellows. We need look no further for an illustration of that than our gospel text today. In it, we find the Pharisees and the Herodians joining forces to lay a trap for Jesus. The Pharisees, you may remember, were a conservative, educated sect of Jews dedicated to upholding the laws and codes of Israel. The Herodians, on the other hand, were dedicated to upholding their wealth and power by collaborating with Rome. Jewish by background, they had little concern for Israel's laws and practices. There was no love lost between these two groups, and they were certainly not in the habit of cooperating. But something about Jesus had rattled them. Maybe it was the sight of him riding into Jerusalem like a peasant king with large crowds of people singing his praises. Or maybe it was his display in the temple, overturning the tables of the money changers, as if he were a person with the authority to do that. That's what really bothered them, was this personal authority that Jesus seemed to possess. It had not been granted to him through official channels of power, channels over which they had influence. And yet the crowds were drawn to him in increasing numbers. It was disturbing. So they joined forces in order to choreograph a surefire gotcha moment. We know what these look like, don't we? They are the bread and butter of the 24-hour news cycle. Disingenuous questions about complicated, controversial issues are asked, not in search of an answer, but rather a soundbite that can be used to discredit or embarrass. Apparently, our generation did not uh, create this tactic. Jesus' foes approach him with a question about the tribute tax. Now, it doesn't matter if you slept through your ancient Roman taxation class in college, because this really is not about taxes. It's about flattering Jesus into betraying either his fellow Jews or the Romans. Pick a side. One would cost him his throngs of followers. The other would land him in a Roman jail. Either way, his authority would be diminished. Problem solved. Except Jesus didn't fall for it. He answered their either-or question with a both-and response. He asked them to look at the coin, the one that had been specially minted for the tribute tax. Whose image is on this, he asked them. It wasn't a trick question. It was clearly the emperor's image and his grand title, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, Pontifex Maximus. I don't know how you get all that onto a coin, but they did. <laughs> there was no doubt to whom this coin belonged. So Jesus told them, give to the emperor what is the emperor's. 
and give to God what belongs to God. There's a soundbite for you, a very quotable quote which has been quoted throughout the centuries. But it begs the question, what exactly is it that belongs to God? Jesus didn't give them a list. Seeing their hypocrisy, he didn't offer them anything that could serve as a litmus test. No set of rules with which to measure their religious or political correctness. Instead, the language he used invited them to consider to whom they belong. Scholars and readers of the original biblical languages highlight that the word Jesus chose when asking about the coin is the same word found in the first chapter of Genesis, at the creation of human beings. Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. It's an interesting connection. Was Jesus inviting his foes to remember that as the coin was made in the emperor's image, so they were made in God's image? As the coin belonged to the emperor, so they belong to God? It's a subtle connection that may have been lost on the Pharisees and the Herodians in the grip of their fear and outrage. But it's a connection that doesn't have to be lost on us. Jesus' words invite us to remember that before any other claim is made on us, we are all claimed by God, created in God's image, made in God's likeness. All of us, before we are Pharisees or Herodians, men or women, Democrats or Republicans, married or single, blue-collar or white-collar, gay or straight, citizen or not-citizen, poor or wealthy, before we wear any of these labels, we are all children of God. This is our primary identity. We have this in common. It's sad to me that the Pharisees and Herodians thought the only thing they had in common was disdain for Jesus. What would have been like if they could have seen the image of God in each other and in Jesus instead of forming alliances based on fear and hate? What would it be like if in our public life together we could see the image of God in each other? Increasingly, our habit is to sort ourselves into like-minded tribes and to create litmus tests and gotcha moments for each other. Every issue that is important for our shared life is cast as a high-stakes either-or, with us or against us. How might our faith call us to a more excellent way what if we began our conversations by looking for the image of God in each other, taking special care with those whom we do not agree? This doesn't mean abandoning deeply held values. It means remembering that one of those deeply held values is the belief that every person is created in God's image. How could practicing this belief help change our life together as a nation. 
I know it's probably simplistic and idealistic, and I am probably guilty on both charges, but we might be surprised. A couple weeks ago, I read a little blurb in the Christian Century about an African-American blues musician named Daryl Davis. In the 1980s, he began the unlikely practice of befriending members of the Ku Klux Klan. He was curious about their hatred, and so began engaging them in respectful conversation. Over time, through these conversations, many of these people gave up their Klan membership. They just couldn't hold on to that hate after they had come to know Davis. Many gave them their hoods, gave him their hoods and their robes as a sign of this friendship. At last count, Davis had over 200 robes that had been given to him. I don't know anything about Davis's faith, but somehow he had not lost sight of the humanity of each of these people. When I read this brief article, I felt both convicted and hopeful. As in Jesus' day, we are a divided nation. This is true. But the larger truth is that God is sovereign over this world and that in that sovereignty, God has chosen to make humanity in God's image. We are specially minted, I guess you could say, to reflect the glory of God. This is the foundation of our common life. When I look for the image of God in you and in strangers and in our public leaders, I remember and acknowledge that the world does not belong to me. I am not in charge. This is God's world. We are all God's people. As I seek to follow Christ, he calls me deeper and deeper into this truth, into this reality. He calls me to surrender my need for power and control and rightness. He invites all of us to lay down our fear and wear the mantle of hope instead. As Christians, our ultimate hope has never been in a perfect temple or church or government, as important as these institutions are, our hope is in the sovereignty of God and in the creative, redeeming, sustaining love that flows straight from the heart of Christ to us. It is this love that has the power to shape us into the people God created us to be. It is in this love we find our hope. Thanks be to God. Amen. We sing together, and if you have prayer concerns, just hold those up and the ushers will gather them.